so as we move into this series, this introduction is going to be on the demonic reality behind all of the conflict, all of the darkness, all of the cursedness that we see playing out day by day by day. It's personal. It's personal for you, and it's larger than you. It's pervasive throughout the media and throughout governments and throughout the world. We want to go deeper into all these categories. So you're getting perspectives from all kinds of different domains, political domains and social domains and global domains and emotional domains and scientific domains, and all those are legitimate. But friends, the Bible would tell us that theology, that's the study of God, has to be above all of those domains or they don't make sense. Why? Because they're grounded in nothingness. They're hanging in midair. And so much weight is put on all these domains, but if theology is not tying all these domains to a greater reality outside of ourselves... Friends, we are in trouble. So what does that mean for Christians? That means for Christians that, listen, we get to look deeper and past the surface level of all the headlines, of all of the political problems, of all of the sociological and economical and psychological problems of our age. We can look right past the surface, levels, levels, levels deeper. And my question to you is, are you being fooled by the surface, by the smokescreen? Or are you able to look past it, past the smokescreen, past the surface level, into the behind the curtain? I hope so. I hope that you're not just being sucked into the newest conflict. You know, this morning, passing through uh, my living room, one of the, you know, Good Morning Americas or something, something like that was on, and they were going back and forth, will the national anthem create controversy tonight? And, and, and they were foaming at the mouth and their eyes were gleaming and they're like, oh God, please, or not God, the universe, please, some power outside of myself, please let there be conflict so that we can blow up the next month with arguments and fights and generate ratings so that the commercials will come in. And you see how this works, friends? Friends, If there is conflict, if there is riots in the streets, if there are sirens, if there are problems, that creates news. And news creates money. And money runs the world. At least the God of this world's world. And friends, as I meditate on Jesus' words when he said, you cannot serve God And he could have picked anything to put in there. He picked money. As the biggest rival to God himself. Money. Because so much of all of our problems, friends, is rooted in a love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evil. And Satan knows it, and he's playing many of us like puppets. Okay, so... I'm a little bit passionate about this, and I don't apologize for that. Are we ready to enter into this series? Okay, good. We want to look deeper. We want to look spiritually at these things, morally at these things, 
and biblically at all of these issues. Okay. If we do not have a higher moral standard outside of ourselves and outside of our culture, then listen, what we think about all these issues will simply be your opinion to my opinion. You realize that, right? If there is no ultimate law, if there is no ultimate standard, if there is no God who can say definitely this is right and this is wrong, then it's all opinions floating in midair, not grounded in anything. Proverbs 1, 5, and 7 says this, let the wise hear and increase in learning. Let the one who understands obtain guidance. Friends, if you consider yourself cultured, if you consider yourself in the know, or you're a red person, oh yeah, he's well read. Listen, here's what I would say to you. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Let the one who understands obtain guidance. In other words, don't come into this series thinking, I already have all my opinions formulated and solid and you can tell me nothing. Friends, that's a a very arrogant, prideful position to take. We should be humble for the simple fact that the scriptures make clear God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And then Proverbs 1.7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, just the beginning. And fools despise wisdom and discipline or wisdom and knowledge. Now to fear God is to take him as the weightiness that the Bible would say he is. God's opinion and God's view of the world should have so much weight in your thinking and in your mind, which then should flow into your living, that other people's opinions should be weightless in comparison. That's what it means to fear the Lord. Now, it means more than that, but for our moment here, will you take God's opinion, where's that found? In the Bible. And let that be weighty in your thinking to the point where it can maybe change the way you see some of these issues. Change the way you think about some of these issues. The fear of the Lord, remember, is just the beginning of knowledge. It's just the beginning of understanding. And to fear him means to hold him in respect to who he is. He's the author of life. He is the one who knows how reality should work because he created it. The designer knows how life should work best. Just like if you created a computer program and you wrote the code, you would know how it works best and how it it doesn't work best. Uh, This this is an interesting illustration. But let's say you're, you're, you're a pistol lover. You love guns, okay? It's not a problem. But what if you got your newest chrome pistol and you're like, you know, I... I want some coffee. So you get out your pistol and you pour your dark roast on top of that pistol and it just splashes all over and you're like, this pistol's useless. You throw it. Well, that would be foolish because that's not what a pistol's for. Cups are for pouring coffee into. And so if you use the pistol like a coffee cup, it's useless. It's worthless. It wasn't designed to be... uh, for coffee. 
You get it? But friends, for so many of us, we are using God's creation in ways that he never designed them for. And we want to say, okay, God, what's your perspective? What's the way you designed the world to work? And what's going on all around me? Help me make sense of my reality. Help me make sense when I turn on CNN and Fox News and ABC and I open Twitter and I open Facebook and I have a conversation with a coworker or I'm in a class and a professor speaking to me. Help me make sense of the world. God, please. That's the fear of the Lord, friends. At least in this sense. It means much more than that. Okay, so let's, let's move on now. The Bible explains that we live in a cursed middle, a cursed in-between place, between creation and recreation. And the fall had happened in Genesis chapter 3. And interestingly, it's not just that Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word. And think about that. We have God's word in the form of 66 books. They had God's word in the form of one command. We're a lot like Adam and Eve, are we not? Because we disobey God's word every day. <laughs> now it's gotten more complex and lengthier, but it's the same thing. And guess what? There was a, a crafty being who inspired the doubting of God and the doubting of God's word. He is pictured here as this shadowy dark figure with blue eyes in the background. And if you can't see, there's a little guy right here, and he has a little book. If you could pinch that and open it up, you would see he's holding a Bible, and the Bible's emanating light, and that's a reference to the Psalms where your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The arrows that are coming down continuously at this guy are the flaming arrows of Ephesians 6 that God uh, warns us about. Satan has flaming arrows that he is shooting at you all the time. We will be in that verse in just a moment. But listen, Satan's first entrance into the world, at least that we know of in the Bible, is Genesis chapter 3. He's tempting our first parents to disobey and doubt God's word and go against God said. We find this in Genesis chapter 3, and they disobey and God begins to curse not like swear, like when you stub your toe, but curse, pronounce curses upon Adam and Eve and the world, the universe. So in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, we read this. This is to the snake. Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring. We know that's pointing to Jesus. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, the seed of the woman. It's a first reference to the gospel in all the scriptures. Genesis 3.16, to the woman, he said, God, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now that, that little curse there takes a series to unpack. But literally what that means is God has cursed the marriage with conflict now. So that may just be helpful for some of you who are married to be like, oh, oh, well that makes sense. <laughs> it's been cursed from the beginning. No wonder I have so many problems. But we have insight into what the problems are going to be. 
The woman's going to desire to be contrary to the husband, and she's going to try to take over the relationship, which is not her role, God-given, God's design. Remember the fear of the Lord. And then his response to her will be to clamp down and to oppress and to negatively control in response. Conflict. And you don't think Satan comes in there and just adds to that curse? Like there's a little pilot light and he's like, ooh, gasoline. And then to Adam, Genesis 3, 17 to 19, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Anyone found their work to be cursed? Now in Genesis, before the, the, the sin of Adam and Eve, they had work. And the work was not cursed. So remember, work is not the cursed. Our work is cursed. This is why you have so many problems at work. Coworker problems, technology problems, things don't go the way they were predicted to go. It's cursed. Thorns and thistles. This is a curse on the creation itself. I think included here is the animal kingdom, uh, plant life, the ocean life, the birds. Now everything is going to turn on each other for survival, and the earth is going to war against us. The earth is going to war against us. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust." And to dust you shall return. In other words, now death is going to be the final uh, consequence of every human being. However, for Christians, we will live again. In a recreation without the curse. Friends, that's our, that's our great hope. But for now, we live in this middle, this in-between of fall, and God is redeeming people out of fallen humanity. We who are the people of God are those redeemed. And then he begins to bring order into our lives. For some of us, it's slow. For some of us, the order starts coming very quickly. Friends, I'm constantly having conversations with people who are not living in God's order. That means their life, if we fear the Lord, is in chaos. But they don't think it is. They think they're just living out their freedom. I mean, this is what I was born for. But their freedom narrative that keeps playing in their heads, even subconsciously, is Satan's deception that you are God. You are in charge of your reality. You blaze your own path. You are the captain of your fate, the master of your soul. Not knowing that's blatantly satanic. And I'm constantly having conversations with tact and with grace, and I'm praying the whole time, God, give me wisdom. How do I word this in such a way that brings your truth? And if they would listen, it would bring your order into their world. And you guys do realize that when you start to line your life up with how God says it should be lined up, it goes better for you. Almost always. It's not a guarantee. We're not health and wealth theologians, but... Most of the times when you live in God's design, it goes well for you. Okay, finally, this is Paul's end of the letter here. Finally, at the end of my letter to the Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friend, that word there, schemes, Paul says, be strong in the Lord. Strong means have strength. Who is our strength rooted in? The Lord, not ourselves. He doesn't say, be strong in yourself. Do your push-ups. Eat your protein shakes. Do your sit-ups. Get your cardio up. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Friends, are you asking for the power of God to come upon you regularly, if not daily? If you're not, you're probably operating in your own strength. And and to be strong in yourself and in the strength of your might is really pride in disguise. Because if you're like, I got this. Friends, that's a bad place to be. One of the best places you could be as a Christian is, I don't got this. And, And listen, if you're really doing ministry, like real discipleship, you will feel so out of your league and so out of control, you will be forced to call upon the Lord for strength and might. But if you got this, if you got this, you're probably not engaged in legit spiritual warfare style discipleship. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, which he goes into um, in the passages past 12. We, we don't have time, but I would encourage you, read the spiritual armor of God and then think to yourself, Jesus is the spiritual armor of God. He is salvation. He is peace with God. He is my righteousness. Jesus is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Jesus is the, the armor of God. When we cling to Jesus and hold on to him and remember to tell ourselves the gospel all the time, we are walking in the armor of God. Now, when I was a kid and I read that, I was like, all right, God, help me now to put on the spiritual helmet of salvation. And I would like, you know, Voltron. 80s kids know what that means, the Voltron helmet. And then, and then you got these, you know, these peace shoes. And Friends, it's the gospel and Jesus is the armor of God. It's not some invisible weaponry. He is your righteousness. If you're depending at all on your righteousness, you are very vulnerable because your righteousness is none. (laughs) But if you know how to walk in that spiritual armor, the, the breastplate of righteousness, that means when you're accused by the enemy of being unrighteous, you can say, of course I am. And Jesus is righteous in my place and I have his as a gift. That's what the cross was all about, the great exchange. And you can silence the devil. Resist him and he'll flee. But if it's you and your righteousness, you're going to feel defeated every single day. Are you not? Okay, so we're not doing spiritual uh, armor right now. We want to do Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. That you may, listen, be able to stand, stand in the assault, not cower down in fear, not run and hide, stand as if the storm is blazing at you and it's so strong that it's threatening to blow you over. And you are standing, how? Because you're in the Lord's might and his strength. And what are we standing against, friends? The schemes of the devil. 
This word schemes, you need to know what the word means. It means this. Methodia is the Greek. Methodia. Guess what that sounds like? Methods. The methods of the devil. That word is translated many different ways, and it helps us to understand what it means. It's, it's translated this way. Strategies, tactics, wiles. We don't use wiles anymore, but it's a good word. Here's what it means. A trick, artifice, or stratagem meant to fool, trap, or entice, or deceive you. Friends, Satan has schemes. He has methods. He has strategies. And who were they aimed at? Mainly the people of God, you. And most of you don't give it a thought. Why? Because we live in a scientific, naturalistic culture that spiritual stuff, I mean, that's, that's Lord of the Rings, man. That's J.R.R. Tolkien. That's fantasy. That's Marvel. That's DC. But friends, the Bible says, no, this is reality. That there are real satanic beings without bodies who are involved in your life. And part of your naturalistic air that you breathe is saying, man, if I said that to some of my coworkers, they would think I was a fool. And you're right. You're right. But you know what? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And if, if demons, real spirit beings who are intelligent and who scheme and have methods, if that would be foolish, then God, the creator of the universe, becoming man to suffer on a cross, I think that's going to be pretty foolish too. And we know what 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says about that, don't we? The God of this world, small g-o-d, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see. So they cannot see. And the only, and don't think you're awesome because you see. Because we learn that the only way we see is if God opens our eyes. So we cannot be prideful for one moment when looking at our coworkers or our professors or our family members or when we read famous atheists or listen to lectures by sociologists. And no, you see because God opened your eyes. And listen, if you feel prideful or arrogant because you can see what they can't, the devil has got you too. He is so masterful in his trickery that you may feel awesome about how much you see and how much they don't, and all of a sudden he's got you too. Paul tells Timothy, listen, don't put a novice in as an elder. Why? Because he'll become puffed up with pride and fall into the snare of the devil. It's so serious, man. A novice means a young believer, an immature believer, a new guy, a new girl. Pride is a trap, a scheme of the devil, and we have to fight it constantly. Okay, and then he says this, we do not wrestle. Friends, this word wrestle literally means, in the Greek, hand-to-hand combat. Like, the picture is this, that demonic hands are on you, and you're in a wrestling stance, and you are fighting, and they are trying to bring you down, and you're trying to bring them down. That's the biblical picture. Have you ever thought about that? That you are engaged in such a personal fight with evil that it's as if their hands are on you, and they're trying to drag you down to the mat and suffocate you. 
That's the biblical picture here. Paul's giving us great insight into the spirit world and why your fight is such a struggle. And I love this next part. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now this is where this is going to be really relevant to this series. Because here's what we're going to be tempted to do. We're going to see the transgender people, and we're going to see the racist people, and we're going to see the abortionists and the abortion doctors and the woman who got an abortion. abortion. They're the enemy. They're not. Friends, they're caught in the middle of a spiritual war that you've been rescued from, and if they're the enemy, we've lost. They're the people we need to reach out to and love. Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Friends, we have been sent on a mission into the world to seek and save the lost, not to condemn and kill them. So if you see the other side of the political spectrum as the enemy that you must destroy, he's got you. He's got you. You've bought into the media garbage. (laughs) Friends, hatred is such a powerful motivator for people. It can create riots. It can create mobbing. It can create a whole group of people who have nothing in common to come together because we hate. And it's so difficult to get motivated by love. To get a group of, like, I could be motivated to love my wife, but it's difficult to get all of us to rally together to love and to force love. Usually I'm doing counseling sessions because the love has broken down. What, what, how do you explain that? We live in a satanically charged world. And hate is powerful because the God of this world is working. Now, that's not to say that Jesus isn't working. He's working in your life, is he not? Have you seen his power at work in your life? I know I have. Massive working of power in my own life and experience. Now, I want him to work more. Here's, here's one of the most recent things that happened to me. It's a cool little story. Um, I, I was doing a restaurant, putting up blinds, and there was a miscommunication, and the owner of this restaurant, who would consider himself rich and powerful, comes flying in emotionally out of control. And he starts screaming in my face, and he is shaking, spitting, shaking in my face, threatening me. And you know what I did? Like the force, I went like this to his face, and I went like that, and he was like, Ugh! and I was like, Ugh! and he fell to the ground. And he started, I'm kidding, that never happened. Because that's not the power of God. We wish it was, right? We wish we could be like, shut up, and just float him up in the middle of the air. We want to be Magneto, right? Lift him up by his jewelry. No, the power of God came upon me, and you know what happened? At the speed of thought, I was able to see him in his arrogance. I was able to see him in his, I am the king over this little kingdom. And and his sin was just on full display before me. And I just kind of looked at him with a smile on my face. My heart didn't even start pounding at all. I answered his questions as calmly as possible. And you know what the proverb says? A gentle answer turns away wrath. So I just stood there and took it and smiled. 
and eventually he chilled out. Now, if I was under the control of my flesh at that moment, you know what would have probably happened? Outburst of anger, him and I would have probably been fist fighting. During the hours that people were there eating. But instead, I just let him act like a fool, out of control, and I just stood there. That's the power of God, friends. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, the ninth is what? Self-control. That's the power of God. Do you see the power of God in your life as the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Because listen, without the Holy Spirit, you're not going to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You will not see it. You might see one of the nine or two of the nine. You're not going to see all of the nine. But when the power of God comes upon you, you probably won't speak in tongues. You're probably not going to talk to a dead person and see them jump out of the coffin. You're probably not, and this is such foolish demonic warfare, yet I've talked to people who do this. I talked to one guy in the mall one time, and, and he was like, yeah, man, I have, this, I have this deliverance ministry. Oh, yeah, what do you do? I go into the hood, and I stand out in the streets, and I put my hands out, and I call out the demons to come fight me. I kid you not. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, you're a fool. Because nowhere in the scriptures are we told to do anything foolish like that. We're told to resist the devil and he, he will flee. We are told to uh, walk by the power of the Spirit and we will not walk according to the flesh. Okay, what are we fighting against, friends? If we're not fighting against all the people we can see, if we're not fighting against the Democrats or the Republicans, if we're not fighting against the other race, quote unquote, who are we fighting? That's right, let's read it. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against who? The rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. This present darkness right now. This was written 2,000 years ago. We're still in the present darkness. We're still in that middle section of fall and redemption. And then what? Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I was having a, a conversation with coworkers the other day. Uh, as I've been praying, God, give me conversation. Give me abilities to speak winsomely and, and with wisdom. They open the doors now. I don't have to open them. So we're sitting at lunch, and they have deep questions about God. Like, is God just this puppet doing experiments? Are we just puppets, and God's doing these experiments on us, and he just wants to see what we'll do, and you know, capriciously throwing us around for eternity? And I was like, no. No. And that opened the door for me to have a real gospel conversation with them. And as I started explaining some of these cosmic things, you know what one of the guys' response was? Man, that sounds like science fiction. And I was like, well, that's because it kind of is like science fiction, only it's not fiction. And God created science. <laughs> Friends, do you realize that we are talking about people without bodies, with intellects far beyond us that are active in the world that you can't see, yet they're plotting, planning, working. We're told in the book of Daniel that when Daniel prayed, God unleashed an angel to answer his prayer, and he gets there like a month late. And then he tells Daniel, listen, I, I, I was dispatched as soon as you prayed, yet the prince of Persia, a demonic force over the entire Persian region, held me for 28 days. 
And Michael, the archangel, arch means chief, the archangel was released to release me. And once he came and released me, I made my way to you. You're like, man, that's, that's Marvel stuff. No, that's Bible stuff. Yet we read that, and for some of us, we're like, I, don't, I, just, I can't do that. Friends, either you believe the Bible and it's truthful or it's not. Either we live in this kind of world or we don't. You got to make up your mind. And the air we breathe is naturalistic and materialistic. And when you talk about Satan and demons, it's like. Yet the Bible would tell us, no, it's real and you're engaged in it. And for some of you, he has been very successful because you don't even think about it. And that's what C.S. Lewis would say, right? We, we know C.S. Lewis has some fantastic quotes, and he wrote, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. The one I would recommend, this is the best one I found. I've had many copies of The, the Screwtape Letters. There was one that the radio theater did, and the voice of Gollum on The Lord of the Rings is Screwtape in the audio book. Um, I, I will set up a resource link to this message, and I'll, I'll link all this stuff on here that I talk about. You can go on. But in the, in the intro to the Screwtape Letters, the big idea is this. There is a senior demon, and there is a junior demon in, for, in rank, and the, the senior one is schooling him on how to tempt and how to defeat human beings. It's very insightful. I think it's masterful. I think God gave C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis just thought he was writing creative fiction. I think God was literally giving him insight into the spiritual world. And in the intro, he writes this. This is so profound. He says, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about the devils. So two, two, (laughs) two equal and opposite errors. You ready? What are they? One is to disbelieve in their existence. And I would say that's the majority of our culture. Our great error of 2018 is to just disbelieve in the existence of Satan and demons at all. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Which are you? Which are you more prone to? The devil made me do it. (laughs) Or, eh, I don't even know if that's real. I've never seen a demon. Never seen shadows jump out of the closet. I've never seen people's eyes roll in the back of their head. I've never seen things levitate in a room. Well, I've had eyewitness testimonies who people have talked to me that have seen those things. Russ Moore uh, is a theologian and author. He says this, the scriptures we know present a picture of the universe as a war zone. With the present age, a satanic empire being invaded by the rival kingdom of Jesus. Talk of such realities rise and fall in the history of the church, oscillating between preoccupation and embarrassment. The church around the world, especially in what sociologist Philip Jenkins calls the global south, grasps the kind of demon-haunted universe presented in the scriptures. But many North Americans and Western European Christians wince at the spiritual warfare novels of the previous generation. With invisible angels and demons duking it out over small-town America, we cringe at the latest television faith healer describing the demons that were persecuting him as right around the time he was caught with the cocaine and the prostitutes. 
We're going to quickly now go to Revelation 12, 1 to 12, and I'm going to fly through this. And for some of you, you're like, man, really? You're going to do Revelation 12 in a couple minutes? Yes. And if I can get some time to study in the future, we'll go through the book of Revelations, but not until then. Okay? Not until then. So this is a portion of scripture that is so relevant for us, we need to hear this and believe it. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This is picturing Joseph's dream with the 12 being the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. We've got to move on. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, the agony of giving birth. This woman here is the church of all times, and probably Mary as a part of the church, but it's not just Mary, because later in the chapter, the woman goes and is pursued by Satan, and God protects her in the wilderness. So she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So we have a woman, and she's about to give birth. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head diadems, that would be crowns. Now, we know that this great dragon is Satan. The seven heads, the ten horns, and the, the, I'm sorry, yeah, ten horns and seven diadems is a picture of usurped authority and rulership over the world. It's all symbolism. But it means he has some power and he's actively working in the world. Verse 4, his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. This is a picture of demons. The demons in the Bible are often considered uh, equivalent to the stars. So Satan appears in heaven. He brings a third of the angels with him. And where do they go? Cast them to the earth. And I wonder if you've ever read the first five chapters of Mark and looked for the demons. I, I am amazed at how many demons show up in the first five chapters of Mark. And yet Jesus is not traveling all over the world. He's doing his rounds by foot in a little tiny area in Jerusalem. And yet there's demons everywhere. Has no, has no one ever noticed that? Like why is there so many demons in this little spatial area? And the answer is probably because they're everywhere. And because we can't see them, we don't think about them. And their great deception for us is hide. Pretend we're not here. We love it. Yet they're at work. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So the picture is delivery room. This woman is pushing. She's about to give birth and the dragon is right there ready to eat the child as it comes out of the womb. That's the picture. Verse five, she gave birth to a male child. This would be the seed of Genesis three, the snake crusher, the one who would crush the serpent's head while he strikes the heel. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, Psalm two. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Jesus gets that verse five. That's his whole life smashed into a verse. Now he's ascended. He's caught up to God and to his throne. Verse six, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished 1,260 days. If the days were 30 months, I'm sorry, if the month was 30 days and you take all those days, you would have three and a half years. Okay. Three and a half years 
is a time that, w- that points back to the Maccabean Revolution. And these people who were reading this would have known about the three and a half years. It was a time where God protected his people from foreign invaders as they were persecuting him and his people. And, and I can't go much more into that. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, I just can't. <clears throat> Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael, that's the archangel, and his angels, he's the leader of the armies of heaven, fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. What is he? He's the deceiver of the whole world. The deceiver of the world. He was thrown down where? To earth. To our realm. And his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Brings to mind Colossians chapter 2. Doesn't it? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And listen to this, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That would be the demonic powers. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him that is in the cross. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing that because Jesus triumphed over the demonic, he can no longer accuse us. He has no ground for accusations now. You remember back in Zechariah, maybe, maybe you don't. Back in Zechariah, we find that there was this high priest named Joshua, and he was being accused by Satan. It's Zechariah 3, 1 to 2. Let me quickly read it for you. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, the accuser or adversary, standing at the right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand? A brand is a burning stick. Plucked from the fire? And the passage goes on to show the cleansing and guilt of this Uh, this priest, the imputing of Jesus' righteousness. His dirty clothes are taken off and he's given new clean clothes. It's a picture of salvation, justification, uh, righteousness being given. It's a picture of the cross. You see, we in Christ cannot be accused anymore. We are sinners. We do have sins that Satan can look at and say, ha-ha, but... Because Jesus received the payment for our sins on the cross, he has no grounds to accuse anymore. Because legally, Jesus paid for every one of our sins, even the ones we'll commit tonight and tomorrow. Therefore, Satan has no grounds to accuse us. Therefore, he's thrown out of heaven and thrown to earth, and he's ticked off. 
He tried to defeat God on the cross, and it was a reverse move. God defeats him as he is trying to defeat God. And he is kicked out of heaven. Now let's continue here. Verse 11, And they conquered him, how? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Okay, their testimony is their gospel proclamation. It's the word. Okay, the word of the testimony is about the blood of the lamb. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony that testifies to the blood of the lamb. For they loved not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But listen to this, guys. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Listen, Satan is furious because he knows he's been beaten. And now he's trying to bring as many people down as possible, and especially the church, and especially Christians. And if you believe Ephesians 6 is true, he's wrestling with you. Do you believe it? And when we look at all these issues of our culture, we must not miss Satan's hand in all of this. We must not miss Satan's hands all through all the mess. And so every week when we come to these different issues, the LGBTQ revolution, we're going to look at it in spiritual terms, not just in political terms, not just in psychological terms. No, Satan is at work. When we look at abortion, we're not just going to look politically or economically or socially. No, we're going to look spiritually at these things. And we're going to see Satan's hand at work to twist God's design, to crush the people made in the image of God, and then specifically to bring Christians down. Look, believe what this says. The devil has come down to you in great wrath. Great wrath. And listen, it took the archangel Michael to kick him out as he was warring with him. Now, how do spirit beings war? We have no idea. We're, we're, we're shooting speculation into the air at every point when we try to explain these things. We're just told it happens. And we have to believe. Most people think they're neutral in this fight. Okay, and that's, that's the perspective you need to have. The average person does not think that they're on Satan's side and they don't think they're on God's side. I, I'm, I'm kind of in the middle here. I'm neutral. I don't worship Satan. I don't kill no goats and offer blood and none of that. But I don't go to worship gathering either and sing Psalm 145 and about that blood. Like, that's weird. But listen, do you know what the Bible would say about neutral people? There are none. There are no neutral people. Neutral people are deceived by the God of this age and they're actually doing his will. Jesus gives us insight to this in John 8, 44. He says to a hostile crowd against him, you're of your father, the devil, because you want to do his will. Your desires and his desires line up perfectly. And when you go after your desires and you go after your thoughts and you go after your bodily passions, you're doing his will. Because he set up the world to work this way. 
because he knows that when you go against God's design, it will destroy you. And that's what he wants. So on that note, I will close with Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and I'm just going to read it. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, that was all of us, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, just I'm neutral, just following the course of the world. I get a job, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to get a better job, I'm going to get a house, I'm going to get a dog, maybe two dogs. I'm going to get married, I'm going to have kids, maybe get a vacation home, and I'm going to retire, hopefully by 55. I'm just neutral in this thing. I don't worship Satan, I don't worship God. You're following the course of this world. And what does that look like? Well, Paul tells us, following the course of the world, following the prince,